one for me because I'm always fascinated by photographers that are capable of doing essentially not just more than one thing, but to do so many different things uh, to such a high standard. And you seem to be someone that I can't even really place what I would imagine your favorite style of work is or your, your favorite genre because you do so many things differently. But before we get to any of my incredulity at what you do with your camera, we have to work out why it is you picked one up in the first place. So why is it that you find yourself in the position now of being a photographer? Oh, well, I first started out in high school, actually. So it was probably around 16. I had a fantastic teacher in an art program who taught us all the old fashioned. I mean, I, I aged myself by talking about that, but taught us all the old fashioned, you know, we did darkroom, we developed our own film, we did color uh, darkroom work, we did all of it and thought it was really amazing. Um, and I, I actually continued to pursue photography a bit through college, but it was right during the cusp of film and digital changing. And so when I was in art school, pursuing photography was sort of a, um, a, a place of choice. You had to either consider yourself a classicalist of some ways or a purist, you know, and do everything really film or invest in this new technology that, that number one was expensive, but also had a lot of trappings. It was almost like moving from oil painting to acrylic. You know, you have to sort of acknowledge the difference in the medium when you paint with acrylic versus painting with oil painting, right? Oil painting is referencing the entire history of art and acrylic has this modern feel to it. And it was that way for me while I was in art school, like this choice that had to be made. So I really walked away from it a bit in, when I was studying art um, and came back to it you know, the short end of that story is I came back to it when I was working at a modeling agency. Um, I worked there. We had a lot of really bad photographers come in and thought they were all fashion photographers. They would all overdo everything. And, and, you know, I would have to be there all the time, art directing and correcting and making things what we really needed for, uh, for, you know, traditional fashion photography. And finally, I just asked my boss, I said, Hey, if I invest in a decent camera. Will you help me pay it off? I mean, that was really where it started. Um, and then it, you know, pursued from there. And then my, my loose association with fashion photography, that thread, like you said, I do other things, but that thread started in that place and having people in front of my camera, um, from then on was really began there. And something that, that, like I said at the beginning, something that really fascinates me with yourself is just that ability to be kind of prolific in, in more than one area. Like I know, I know great headshot photographers, I know portrait photographers, I know um, great commercial photographers, but very, 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 very few people are able to kind of cross those borders, as it were. Um, much like America, I don't feel like 80% of photographers have the passport that requires them, uh, that they're required to have to be able to actually cross borders. So you, you have this amazing ability to kind of uh, dance around um, different genres. Is there a particular style or genre that you, you tend to favor in terms of your enjoyment of photography? That is incredibly flattering for you to say all that. I'm like a bit phased by that um, compliment to start, but I think I think what it really comes down to is I, I there's a couple of visual things I really like that cross over. Um, one is I kind of like a comp, an uncomplicated, simple um, finish, so nothing too stylized. I think that has helped me move from one genre to the other in some ways because you know, if you have a really specialized artistic look to your finished product, product, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a taste, you know, it's a person, personal taste thing, but I just happen to tend towards a 
uh, simple, low produced feel to a lot of my work. And so it, it translates a little better than, you know, if you have this really particular color grading style or, uh, or finish. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think the other thing is, is that I'm, I am still known for people. So yeah, I work in other genres, but most of the time I've met that client by being able to work with people in their sphere. So an example might be, I might be doing some very like boring, not boring, but very uh, technical product work, right? But I will have probably previously done some project for that same company that involves some people, um, whether it, it had been headshots or some kind of lifestyle campaign. And I think because I have an ease with people and an ease with making something that a lot of photographers struggle with, which is like uh, working with real people, right? I think that's a really tricky part of photography that a lot of people don't like. Um, and I move in that space pretty well. So when you when you get to know a, a corporate client or a, an ad agency that knows that you can navigate that space well, sometimes you get called on for other stuff because regardless of of whether or not the subject matter is still a person, sometimes there's people involved. So one of the best examples I have that crosses over a lot, and I've worked with a lot this year, is Food Network, right? They, I first got introduced to them. I'm not a food photographer, I'll say that. And I don't think that even Food Network would balk at the idea that they hire me and I'm not a food photographer. But they first hired me for a project that somebody else turned down because it involved kids and people um, that somebody didn't feel comfortable shooting. Um, so they said, Hey, you know, who we know that does people really well is Elizabeth Wiseman. So then I come in and I, I can navigate the other stuff as well. Just fine. You know, I can do food. I can do still life. I can do all these other things, you know, technically as well. Um, and, and they just still continue to choose me, uh, if they feel like I'm a relevant choice for them. And, and I think that that mostly comes from my abilities with people. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to jump straight on something you brought up there, which is Something that I honestly, as I work as a wedding photographer, um, for the most part and a portrait photographer in with that, because I think they kind of go hand in hand, but working with kids is something that I, I just, I see so many people are so terrified of. So many people are so uh, almost to the point of being disgusted with because of like how hard it is and how you have to basically be a decent human being because kids will see through you quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, you are, you are obviously good at working with kids, but do you actually enjoy working with them? And for, for those brave enough to give it a go, do you have any tips for people that are looking to do work that it does involve kids? Oh, I love working with kids. I think there's some limits, right? Um, the, so the modeling industry, which is where I began, sort of begins at about age five. Uh, the, the very few modeling agencies accept children under the age of five. And I think my comfort level drops off at that age as well, because then you really get to a point where you're um, having to coax a lot and it's not collaborative. I mean, even at five years old, six years old, if you can get the kid having fun, you guys can all have fun. Um, below that, it's really, really tricky and you're really chasing them around a lot. I'm not opposed to the idea. I love, I love kids of all ages, but, but I think that that's, uh, I think that's something that people don't know and, and perhaps should give themselves a little bit of grace for. Like, as long as you're not working with babies, kids can really be collaborative. Um, I do usually have a few places that I start when I'm working with kids. Number one, I think is a super basic one, but people forget it, which is introduce yourself and, and get to know them and ask them what they like and, and be there, be present. I think a lot of photographers are leaning heavily on the handlers of the kids when they're on set with them, especially commercially, right? If you're on a set with other actors that are adults, and then you happen to have this extra kid, you know, they don't, they don't talk to them much. Um, and I'll, I'll be the first one, you know, over there 
getting their names and making sure that they feel like I know who they are and that they have a heads up on what I'm going to say and what, you know, what my camera is going to do. So I think that's important, communicating with them, uh, giving them a sense of, of, of equality, like that, that somebody really cares that they're there. Um, and then the, the other thing that I have is a couple of really silly tricks. Um, they're as basic as saying, I ask if I need a kid to smile, I ask them what their favorite food is. It's so dumb, but it's really, you would be shocked how much a child lights up when they have to think about macaroni and cheese or pizza or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's such an American I guess, ism to say that that's what all kids eat, but they do, they eat that here. So, uh, so yeah, they, that's something I do is I, I'll wait for those moments of the kid really falling in their energy level. And then I'll bring up some things that I know that they like, that they have to naturally think about in order to light up. Another one is, is I get their feet moving. So, uh, you know, kids, kids have a tendency to be pretty stiff or running all over the place. You know, you don't have a lot of space in between. So I have little, little techniques that I do that's hard to describe over a podcast, but I'll do my best. It's basically where I have them stand with their feet shoulder width apart and I have them rock back and forth on their feet. Um, and it adds just a level of natural movement for them that can give me almost any kind of commercial experience that I need, whether it's they need to look like they are reacting excitedly to a birthday present, you know, or if they need to be um, you know, I can't, I can't think of anything super specific that it wouldn't apply to, um, especially in catalog work or something where the kid is by themselves on set, you know, this is just a way to keep them dynamic and fun without them running off or doing the things that you're really afraid of, which is them, them feeling like they can't collaborate in front of your camera. So I think those are the things I think of if it's a group setting. So food network, for example, when we have kids, it's usually an, an eating scenario. Um, kids really need to know who to look at. And I think that's something another photographers forget because they think that everyone knows they're working with, they're used to working with professional actors, professional models, professional models and actors kind of get that they get eye lines, they get action. Kids kind of don't, they get really lost in all the stuff that's going on. They, they look directly into the camera when they're not supposed to. So I, I really, talk to them a lot about what that means to look at the other people on set. And if I absolutely can't get them to understand it conceptually, I say all the time, look at your daddy's eyes or look at Brian's eyes or whatever the other actors and what color are they really look in there? Can you see, is it blue or is it green? Cause I can't see it from here. Can you tell me? And then you get these really great engaged moments. Um, you know, food network, other types of lifestyle shoots that I've done here lately, we often have to have this family feel. It's a very coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 thing where they want everything to seem like it's inside the same household, right? Um, and so we really need these intimate moments. And every once in a while, you get situations where these people have never met before. But if you can get people to really look in, into each other's eyes and really kind of engage in that way, even if it's fake for a moment, you know, they're the kids just trying to see what color the person's eyes are, but even the other adults, they really think it's charming and they think it's funny and they stand there and they stand really still trying to let the kids see the color of their eyes. And you get these really lovely moments. So you, sometimes you just have to find the thing that your client needs is the client need them to look more closely at the other person. Do they need them to move more? Do they need to do whatever and identify that thing that you're missing and then come up with a creative solution to it. I mean, that's not a very specific response, but that's, I've just tried to over the years, find those holes and what makes a child hard to work with and then fill them with something really concrete because you can't just say, 
well, this kid was bad, or uh, I'd rather them have used an older child. You know, you don't have control over that kind of stuff. So you have to, you have to really find moments to say when things start to slip away, you know, what, what concrete thing can I tell this kid to do that's going to help us get back on track? And for someone that covers so many genres, do you ever find yourself, I mean, obviously, I guess with, with commercial work, it's, it's about what's in front of you, um, especially at times like this, but do you ever find yourself using you know, one type of shoot to offset another? So, you know, maybe sometimes working on mass with kids over and over again, or working in one particular style might sort of drain you a little bit creatively that you can switch maybe in your personal time to shooting something different that will just sort of replenish that energy and and that desire to actually pick up a camera. Yeah. So I have young children of my own. And so most of my business growth, um, I don't get a ton of time to do personal projects. So one of the things that I like about having diverse clients is that that happens a bit naturally. Um, it's almost like having a diverse investment portfolio. Yeah, it's about money for sure. Like the idea that if one, you know, if you only photographed, I'm trying to think like something that would have gone away during COVID. Like what's a, what's a, what's a genre of photography that went away completely during COVID? Something with a lot of exposure. I can't think of something specific. I mean, in England, in England, it's weddings. Weddings have just disappeared. Um, and to be honest with you, pretty much anything that's not based around a brand sending you something to your house or to your studio and you shooting it on its own as a, as an item. That seems to be all we have left over here. But obviously yeah. America's, you're, you're living in a country that's basically 50 countries um, all mixed into one. So it's hard to tell um, from the outside, you know, what the, what the effect has been um, over the past 12 months. Yeah. It's really different in like Los Angeles and in New York. And well, where I am, there's a joke that we are the number one hot spot in the world, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so weddings is a great example. I don't know why I didn't think of it. Weddings is, is still slow. I think everywhere, especially it was over the summer where it should have been, you know, the peak of it. Um, so, so, you know, having that diversity where if something slows down for me, the fact that someone comes along and says, Hey, I have this weird idea or this thing that you don't normally do, but I want to try it. That does keep me creatively inspired because it, it allows me to try something new in a safe space because it's usually with a, a client that I trust and trusts me. Um, and so I don't, like I said, I don't get a lot of opportunity to say, oh, I haven't shot um, kids or products or whatever in a long time. I'm going to do my own thing. Every once in a while, I get a chance to do that. But really, most of the time, I'm, I'm really running from one thing to the next in my personal life. But but yes, when, when something new comes around, I feel totally re-energized. I feel really ready for that change. And, and as I left St. Louis and now I live in East Tennessee now, I was living in St. Louis. It's about a, it's about a uh, eight hour car ride uh, away. I think it's about 500 miles away. Um, it, it was a big change for me. And so when I came to a new market and was able to, to get in with new clients and have new experiences here, it was very, very creatively uh, expansive. I mean, overall, when it comes to let's let's talk adults here. When it comes to directing on like a wedding editorial, portrait shoot, headshots, or whatever, are you someone that's adapting your directorial style to the person that is in front of you, or are you someone that you have almost a persona that? Because it's it's interesting. Something I've learned. This is episode number one hundred and thirty-two of the podcast, and I, I've spoken to a lot of different people that shoot people, and and some people are very staunch and hardlined with they are a certain way and other people react to that and that's what they capture and then there are other people who 
sort of manipulate themselves around the person that's in the chair in front of them to get the best results. Which one of those two best describes you? I think I perhaps make them come to me a little bit more than I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way. Um, I think because I very rarely am doing a portrait where the person is themselves. That is one limit to my my portfolio in some ways. I very rarely am doing, for example, an expose on someone for a magazine. I do some of that work, but my portrait work tends to be commercial. And so when I'm doing that, I really have to bring someone to the place that the client wants them. And fashion work is that as well, right? There's a story, there's a narrative, there's a thing that we're doing. um, And it tends to be what the client needs or someone else outside of the model or the subject needs. So I lean into that and I really try to, to get them where I want them and where that vision is, I think more than I, I let them do their thing. I think some of that also comes from the fact that working in fairly small size markets, like I do, I don't, I don't work much in New York or LA or these other places. Most of my models or subjects are not super experienced in front of the camera. So if you lean too heavily on someone who's kind of terrified to be there, even if they're a model, they just often don't have that much experience. Then you spend a lot of time working through, trudging through uh, what they're trying to do until you can get to something raw and authentic. So I think I've just over the years uh, developed some things that get get me somewhere where we're getting a basic level of usable stuff and then praise the heck out of the model or the subject. Say like, wow, we're really somewhere. We're really getting something. This is working. This is amazing. And then hopefully they'll start to get to the point where they're feeling collaborative and they're, they're comfortable and they add more of themselves as we go. Um, but I don't think that's where I began. I don't think I began with this authentic notion of someone has something to offer the camera. I think I really, I really steer them in a direction that I think, uh, I think it should go first and then have them add, to my vision as we go. Um, and that seems to work for me. I think some of that is also just because most environments I work in are restrictive with time. They're restrictive in the, the vision of the client and all that. And I don't mind that. I think it's fine. And, and I think it can be kind of fun for everybody to, to get there together um, and start with an idea instead of that amorphous notion of there's something real we have to get. Um, I, I'm painfully English. So I do have to ask at least one Frighteningly pessimistic question. Sure. What's your least enjoyable part of photography? That what's the part of, of your day to day life as a photographer that brings you the least joy? Oh, uh, that's an easy one for me. Data management. Uh, I really dislike it. I really, once I have taken the images, I want to just throw my camera at the floor and be done for the day and like <laughs> mic drop, you know? Um, I th- I find that part to be really tedious. I, I don't mind the actual culling of the images, going through the images and narrowing them down because that feels, that feels still creative, but really, truly the, um, the saving, the, the, the backing up, the, um, the archiving, the, you know, metadata, all that stuff feels really, really difficult for me. Um, and it feels, it feels like I'm wanting to have been done long before that process even begins. And I suffer, I suffer a little bit with that because if someone needs something from a long time ago, I often don't have great, um, resources to keep people organized in that way. I've gotten better over the years, but it, it really took some self-reflection, um, and some loss of some images and some, you know, backups that went missing. I mean, nothing, it's never happened on a large scale by any means, but there'll just be times where I go, 
you know, Oh, I, I did that deliverable of my five favorite shots from that project. And I have no organization of all the thousand leftover (laughs) ones, you know, there's nothing, there's, there's no way that any of those are ever going to see the light of day ever again. Um, and I used to be even worse. It used to be, I'd, I'd agonizingly, um, stare over a whole gallery, pull out a handful of shots to retouch that I was just totally in love with and then throw them away and be like, Oh, that was fun. (laughs) And then have to start (laughs) over with my retouching process. I had no workflow. So it's something I've really had to teach myself over the years, just as a, just a baseline for as a professional, but it does not come naturally to me. And whenever I have digital texts, you know, I don't know what you call them. You guys call your data management assistants, digital texts or DITs. They, they get super annoyed with me because you know, they'll ask me all kinds of questions about how I want them to manage the work that we're doing. I'm like, ah, whatever, give them, the, give them the raws, put, throw all the raws on a hard drive and hand it to the client. And people are just freaking out. Like, Oh no, don't do that. <laughs> I'm like, my work's done. I've taken the photos. That's what I'm here for. And they're beautiful. And they're perfect as is let it go. So that's really tricky, but uh, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> well, where I find myself on the food chain, my, my data manager is, is called Chris. So it's just basically me. But I, I guess that's one of the, the frightening parts of moving up the ladder is you have to start coming up with names for people for all these different jobs. That, let me try and stay positive because you have one of those wonderful positive American accents and I always feel so guilty whenever I throw out negative questions. Sure. Kind of really interested in this one um, and a lot of people sort of sidestep this as a question um, and it's kind of a weird one that people, I, I guess I'm just learning that certain things that I think are totally regular other people don't but what are the attributes to you of, of your ideal, say, portrait or fashion subject? Oh, portrait or fashion subject. Um, gosh, you know, my career has been so context oriented that that just throws me off a bit. Um, because, you know, like we were talking about before, I pull someone into the narrative. So it almost doesn't matter to me too much. Um, I think I think to me, culture is so important. I think that comes from the idea that that the relationship and my, you know, quote unquote, being good at working with people is all about relationships. It's all about how I feel with the person or making the other person feel good. So I think my ideal person is just easy to work with. It's someone who, um, who's worked well with me getting to the point of coming into the studio. I mean, sometimes I don't need, need a model before before the moment I'm taking their picture, but other times I'm talking directly with models and collaborating there. So someone who's, who's communicative and laid back and, uh, and kind and, and creative really, once you get on set, somebody who's fearless is priceless. Somebody who can say, you can, I can start with all those tricks that I just talked about, you know, the ones for kids, translate to adults too. You know, I might say, Hey, I need you to move more. Let me have you kick your feet these certain ways so that we can get a few more choices and then we'll see what's working. Um, you know, someone who doesn't hesitate at that or doesn't, doesn't nervously laugh when I have them do something that puts them slightly off balance in order to get a more interesting angle. Uh, those are really important when you're trying to be creative. It's hard to be a creative photographer when your model is is stiff or, uh, or too cool or, or rude, you know, those are, those are really, I think that's kind of obvious. Um, so there's probably some nuance in there that, um, that creativity is perhaps the thing that is just so exciting to have on set is someone who does something I'm not expecting or, uh, or adding to the concept in some way that I didn't see coming and allows my work to feel better. You know, I think someone told me when I first started doing photography that photographers get too much credit and too much 
blame um, when they're working with models because they get too much credit when they're working with an incredible model, right? Because somebody's going to really bring in uh, not just beauty, but movement and expression and angles and all these incredible things. But people say, oh, photographer, wow, what a great photograph you genius photographer, but they also get too much blame. You know, if you, if you didn't have a hand in hiring a model, you'd have all these incredible ideas, but if that person is too scared or, or, uh, or too, I don't know, too uncreative, too, too stiff to, to give you the things that you need, there's almost nothing you can do. Um, I, like I said, I have some of those tricks that I pull out, but you know, they only go so far if you have somebody that's just really difficult to work with. Something that's been a huge rise over the past 10 years. Uh, with photography. And I guess it's just hand in hand with the rise of things like YouTube, uh, the internet at large, social media, and so on is, is the rise of education for different mediums outside of the normal formalities of going through like a college or a university. And this is pretty much one of the first ways I became aware of your work to a higher degree was through your, uh, is it, I believe it's now pro edu. Yeah. Uh-huh. It used to be R-G-G-E-D-U, and I always thought that was the most stupid name because it was really hard. You, like, it would take you like five minutes to explain to someone what it was. <laughs> Pro-E-D-U, at least, is a little bit quicker to say. Yeah, with, with, yeah. with regards to education, what's the, what's the urge for you to teach other people how to do what you do? Because obviously cameras are, are fairly common now, and everyone's a photographer if they've got an Instagram following. So is there no concern on your part that you might be opening up the door for people to come in and maybe steal a little bit of your piece of the market? I love that question because honestly, the first time I worked with ProEDU, that was one of the very first things we overcame was they said, if you have, if you're going to be holding back your secrets, then there's no point. If you're going to be feeling like there's industry things that you're not going to want to tell people because you have to keep them too close in order to to let the competition suffer, <laughs> then, then we're not a good fit. And I have never felt that way. I think it came from the fact that when, when I started, I was in a modeling agency, right? And when I first started doing fashion photography, and actually to this day, I work very closely with modeling agencies doing model portfolios. And I have learned so much about the modeling industry. I mean, I know more than probably most working models about how different markets work and how managers versus agents work. And, and anyways, this is either here nor there. But the point is, is that people ask me questions constantly about the modeling industry. And I found myself wanting to write blogs about it and wanting to, to do certain things to help people get past this, this mystical veil that the modeling industry seems to have, which feels very almost dark and overwhelming. And then the thing that I made the ProEDU tutorial about, which is model testing, had a little bit of that as part of it. It felt uh, secretive. It felt like this little part of the fashion photography industry nobody talks about because sometimes it doesn't involve a money exchange. It's something that people do on their own time. Even the top, top, top photographers do it, but people don't want to talk about it. They also don't want to talk about how uh, with models, when you're working with them, it can be tricky to get them to know your worth and your value when you're a photographer. So I found myself getting emails constantly from other photographers saying, how do you do this thing? How do you do model testing? How do you get in with the agencies? How do you get these models in front of your camera? Um, and specifically, you know, for anyone who doesn't know me working in small markets, right? So I'm not in New York, I'm not in LA, 
but I have decent models in front of my camera, which is trickier than you'd think. Right. Um, and so people would say, Hey, how do I get better models in front of my camera? And how do I get them to not waste my time? How do I get them to show up? How do I get them to pay me? Um, and after a while, I realized that I was sharing that information for free anyway, and it wasn't affecting my work. I always feel like if you're willing to share the information that you have, you're going to naturally be a step ahead of you're, you're going to be want to be changing and being more creative with the next step in your career anyway. So it didn't really feel like I was creating competitors. Um, I was just giving people shortcuts to what took me a couple of years to get to. Um, but it makes me better too. I think once, as soon as I tell someone something that I find easy, I think, well, then I need to elevate it. I need to get it better. I need to do it in a way that they, these, this person can't do. Um, and so it's pushed me quite a bit. And I like that part about it. I've also just liked, I've always liked teaching. I taught in, at a university when I was in graduate school. Um, I taught at an acting school for a little while. Um, and it's just something I, I have a passion for and really enjoy and really enjoy watching people walk away with something that I feel like only I could have taught them, which is probably narcissism. So excuse me for that. But, uh, I, I just think that there's something really special about teaching and it pr- produces community in a way that I'm not sure there's other things that really do. Maybe having a podcast that probably creates community in the same way, but <laughs> it's, it's such a nice outlet for me. And, uh, and it doesn't involve data management. So, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to your point, I, I think it was episode like 99. I had one of probably the most influential photographers to me in, in my entire history with a camera, which is Ryan Brenizer, who's massively influential in the sense that he kind of, he coined this Brenizer method um, that's very, very popular at the moment. And he's photographed people like Obama and, and so on. And he said uh, in an interview about him teaching how to do his method, they said to him, are you not worried that you know, people learning your method are going to be able to take your job. And he said, well, if you're relying on holding one thing back um, to keep you in the business, you're going to be out of the business the second someone figures it out without you knowing. And the one thing that's for sure in this day and age is whatever you try and keep secret, someone's going to figure out. So you're better off just like you say, being one step ahead and not relying on like the crutch of hiding something from everyone else and just kind of embracing making yourself a better version. Let me add to that. Let me add to that. One thing that I think has carried me creatively and personally through my whole life, it's a bit of a mantra, and that is your voice is unique, right? And that's that's not rocket science. That's not something that we we don't hear a lot. But there is something to the idea that good art is at the same time universal and unique. And we do, we certain things end up in museums because we all kind of agree that they're great. Not everybody, but most people agree that these are the, these are the pinnacle of somebody doing something that is unique, but they're also universal. And so I think that those secrets are funny because people are overemphasizing the unique side and forgetting the universal side. We need to be at doing something that we all get and we all understand and we can all say, I recognize that and it's important to me and it speaks to me culturally. And then everything else that you do on top of that, only you can do anyway. Every artist's voice is uniquely theirs. And no matter how bad you are at photography or bad you are at painting or whatever, there's something about it that's only you are going to produce. And and I think that that's so important for everyone who is pursuing anything creatively to do is say that you're, you're at your best when those two things meet. And so the notion of secret is to me not relevant and to making good art. Cause I think that those secret things actually become 
the universal things that are so important to us all connecting as artists and as culture. Where are you finding your inspiration? I'm finding so much lately that people who work in one particular medium don't generally find their inspiration from within that medium. They, they find it externally. I personally find I'm most motivated to go and shoot right after watching a, a fantastic movie that's got amazing cinematography. And although I don't do anything with video, just some of the composition, the framing and the color work, whatever, is what makes me want to go and shoot. Um, even to the point where sometimes music kind of uh, fires me up to go and do um, some photography. So what is it that kind of most lights the fire under you to go and, and, and do what you do? Oh, that's such an interesting idea. Um, I, I, you know, what popped immediately into my head is I have been looking a lot at architecture and interiors lately. Um, and I think it's because, you know, I'm doing some work on my house. So that's the real practical reason for that. But it also is because it is something I had not been very good at over the years was making a room look really beautiful or deciding whether or not architecture was was beautiful architecture or generic architecture. And, and whenever I would read an article about a famous architect and why their piece was so, I don't know, change, you know, historical or, or changed culture in some way, it would be a little bit baffling to me. So I feel like it stretched me a lot when I started really digging in and thinking about like, why, when we enter a space, do we engage more when things are beautiful to us and how do we, how do we tie things together and how do we look at them in a way that, um, that feels restful, but at the same time, interesting. And, and, and I, I collect a lot of art in my own home, I, just from friends and, you know, people I find nothing fancy, but that that idea of space and composition and movement has really been on my mind. And I do think that it inspires me to make make creative things. And, and I found a newfound uh, urge to to mesh those ideas together. Like, what's my personal taste? I'd never really thought about it. And, and you could say it as simple as like, when you go to decorate your bedroom, what's your personal taste? But, but really, it was just never important to me. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, these are things I want to think about more, which is what do I surround myself with? And, and when I go to work uh, and lifestyle clients, I'm thinking about those things more and I'm wanting to merge those visions more, which is um, the colors that I'm attracted to and the, the textures that I'm attracted to and how to put all those things together. Something I try to never do with this is to blindside people. Uh, I mostly have the podcast here is, is the framework is just, I want to promote work that I like so I can selfishly force other people uh, to like things I like, therefore there'll be more of it. And I'm basically just cultivating a world that caters entirely to my preferences. <laughs> the original algorithm. Exactly. I, I want to be the algorithm. That's my ambition in life. But there is uh, one thing I'd, I'd love to talk about, or at least just say my piece on, which might seem a little bit selfish in a, in a podcast that's about you, but I'm, I'm going to go for it. Uh, so I started photography back in uh, 2013, January 2013. I got married in November 2012, and we were engaged for two years. had a, had a very long uh, engagement. It was a, a, a two year engagement, but it was it felt like 2020. Basically, we had so many things come up. One of which was um, my mother in law getting quite ill, and something that I really regret about the uh, the sort of circumstance at which I found photography after it would have been useful for this particular scenario is that I, I don't have some images that I really wish I'd have taken of her before she passed. And it's mirrored directly in every single sense. Um, it was breast cancer to uh, some absolutely stunning photographs that you've taken of 
of your mum. And it's something that I just think is such a wonderful use of the medium. And especially at a time when people use photography to either show off a world that they don't really live in to make themselves look like they're living a better life than they really are, or it's just used as a device to generate uh, likes and uh, validation from other people. Um, the images that you took of of your mum, and um, I'm hoping that through 2020 things progressively can be as, as good as possible for uh, the horrible things that have been imposed on her by the universe. I just wanted to say that, you know, the fact that you used the medium to do what you did means a lot outside of where you probably think it would have meant. And to, to someone like me that definitely has seen some of what you're going through, I, I think you did a fantastic job. And I think it's just some of the most beautiful photography I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. What I think was so hard about doing that, and I can see why you wouldn't have done it, is because you don't want to tokenize someone in a moment where they're vulnerable. Um, and and so it was a really, it was a bit of a lucky moment to be able to take those photos of my mom um, because she was in a in a positive. So she she was showing the literal and figurative scars of the journey at the moment, right? She had some burns on her from radiation and she'd had, she really wasn't well healed from her surgeries and she, her head was still bald. Um, but she was at a pause in treatment. And so I felt comfortable, you know, saying, Hey, let's document this moment. Um, whereas now, you know, it's not, she, she could listen to this and we, we all could talk about this. It's not any secret, but you know, her disease has progressed. And, um, and at the time there was more hope. I mean, there's hope, there's always hope, right? That's, that's not what I mean, but a moment of hope, but that you can still document hard things is like a little pocket, uh, to, to get in space. Um, and I feel very lucky that we found that moment and the way that the light moved in that day. I know this is a podcast. We can't show the pictures, but you know, I have them anywhere. People want to find me. They, they'll find those pictures because they're some of my favorites as well. But, um, the light just did something really spectacular in that moment. And, and I just felt so, so grateful to be able to have said, Hey, you're in a good place right now, but we still need to do this. We need to document this. And we specifically said before your hair goes back and her hair's gone again now, and it's been gone. I think that I'm kind of waiting for that to happen again. So I can take more pictures of her. And, and I, I find that even when I take, I, I, I find that even when I take just phone photos of my mom, her friends um, are always talking about them. They're just pictures of her getting a treatment or, you know, something us waiting in a waiting room. But I think people don't get to see that part of life very often that, that those hard moments and the, um, the things that are, that feel very banal, but serious. Um, and it's builds a reaction in people and they feel connected to those moments. I think we've all had those moments. We just don't see them in other people's lives. And so, so it's been really important. And I, I even had the thought today that I need to really ask her what that boundary is and say, can I take more? Um, cause I would like to, I, I mean, I'm with her at a lot of appointments and a lot of treatments and I, I would really like to show her, um, you know, in, in moments that are not always pretty and moments that are, um, are complex, you know, an example is 
she is always kind of dressed to the nines and can no longer dress herself easily. And what does that do to a photo of somebody who's always dressed really beautifully? Um, so those are things that, that I, I'm, I'm encouraged to pursue more. And I feel very lucky that I did that the first time and, and pushed for that portrait session to take place during a peaceful moment in our relationship because they, those moments pass and then things start to feel dark and then you don't feel like you can, you can cross that boundary with someone and make them feel vulnerable in front of the camera. Well, there's very few things that last as long as regret. So the fact that you're in that position that you feel like you, 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 you know, you managed to do something that so many of us would have let pass is, is obviously a wonderful thing. And, and I think, you know, the images are just fantastic. I have one question left for you. Um, I know that you need to get stuff set up for uh, Christmas and quarantine life and, <laughs> and all of that. But yeah, um, one last question for you. And it's a really sure. annoyingly difficult, broad one. But I have to ask this of someone, like I've said countless times now about all of the different genres and the different styles of which you shoot and the fact that you cover so many things so well. Do you feel like there's one image that defines you as a photographer? And if so, why? Oh my gosh. One image? One image. Can I, can I go to my website? I don't know. I, you know, of course you have me thinking about those images of my mom now. Um, uh, and I think there's something about those that I might choose if I, if I couldn't pick something else, partially because it's personal, of course. Um, but it's also portraiture in its best moment. It's a real person. It's, um, a tricky situation that, involve some directing of someone in a vulnerable moment, someone who doesn't have their picture taken very often. And so the cross-section of a lot of the things I do came together in that, the, that series of images. Another one I might choose um, is I did a series of portraits. So it's a series. It's not one picture. I'm so sorry. Um, but I did a series of portraits for artists at this place called the city museum in St. Louis. And the city museum is this, this thing I can't describe. It's like Willy Wonka, Tim Burton. Those are all very American references, but I think people know them. Um, it's like this real person came to this big warehouse in St. Louis and took a bunch of architectural salvage and made a giant 10,000 square foot playground or more. It might be, it's huge. It's a big warehouse. And there's artists that work there and these artists are given free reign and they are told that they have no deadlines and that they can just build and they can be creative. And I went in and for one of the first times in my career had this very open-ended assignment to just document them in the form of a portrait. And it was funny to even get some of them to participate because it involved kind of standing still for a minute <laughs> and some people opted out, but there's, there's a couple of portraits in there of some of the older artists that work there in, in this moment where they're, they kept saying to me like, Oh, but I'm dirty or, Oh, I'm wearing my welding gear. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, standing in this dust and I'd say, yeah, that's what we want to see. And I think that's something people don't realize about photography is that we as photographers often value those moments to peek behind the scenes and bring our camera with us more than we do the moments where we have an art director over our shoulder curating every piece of reality that we document. And so maybe this one photo of this welder 
leaned up against this. I don't even know what it is. It's a giant piece of metal. And he's standing there with his welding pads on and he's looking directly into the camera. And he is just literally standing in the same place I found him when he was working and it feels very real and it feels, um, beautifully lit by just the environment that was there. And it was a moment that I looked down at my camera after taking the shot and thought, this is, this is why we're photographers because I see this guy and, and I didn't even have to do anything. I was just looking at the world around me and finding a beautiful image. See, it wasn't that hard. (laughs) (laughs) I had to to get there. I had to get there. (laughs) Obviously, like I said earlier, I'm one step closer. Every podcast, I've become one step closer to becoming the human algorithm and just getting everything that I want. Yep. An important part of that is to make sure I push as many people that listen to this towards your work. So this is a chance for you to plug all the places that people can find you. Sure. Okay. So you can find me on uh, the the most up-to-date place is always my Instagram, which is eWisemanPhoto, all one word. And Wiseman is spelled exactly like it sounds, W-I-S-E-M-A-N. I also have a YouTube um, because I have just started it over the pandemic. You'll have to probably search for me. So Elizabeth Wiseman Photography on YouTube will find me. Um, you can give me a follow there. And I have clips of my ProEDU tutorials. Um, I have a whole chapter of the ProEDU tutorial on there. And I have lots of little interviews and things like that that are kind of fun um, pieces there. Um, and then I have a website, of course, which is wisemanphoto.com, which is a broader sense of my portfolio. That one is probably most interesting to look at for professional photographers because um, it's really pointed more towards art directors and people who are going to hire me at a commercial level. Um, So you don't see quite as much of my fashion work and you see a broader range of the types of things I do and monetize there. So, yeah. You've been an absolutely wonderful guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 